Our guest tonight you will know as um, one of Britain's most beloved actors slash comedians slash writers slash producers. Usually you say slash model slash model, all of those things. He has given um, Britain, Little Britain, Andy, Stafford, Bubbles de Vere. He has appeared in Minder, which is something that I learned reading his memoir, which we will come on to talk about in a bit. He didn't sing the theme tune, but he did appear in Minder. He very memorably appeared in Bridesmaids. And he starred in Pompidou, Les Miserables, Doctor Who, and Come Fly With Me. And now he's a memoirist. He's here to share the truth behind all those creations and his own heartbreaking and heartwarming story. Please welcome Matt Lucas. Hello, hello. Hello, thank you, thank you. Hello. Hello. Thank you, hello. Oh, hello. This is nice. This is comfy, isn't it? It's more comfy than the chairs back there, isn't it? Yeah, much comfier. Gosh, shocking. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Right, what now? Right. <laughs> so, the thing is, the book... Yeah. Why, why now? Why, why decide to write a memoir at this point in your life? Well... And why not get somebody else to write it for you? Yeah, that, I wish I had. Um, <laughs> that, uh, I th so I've just written my autobiography and I'm 43, and, but a lot of things happened to me. And so I thought I'd write it because... And I, yeah, I did write it myself. And, 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 uh, because I wanted to upload... I wanted to upload it out of my head. One, while I can still remember it. And two, I wanted to create some space for some new experiences. And you, mm. I find, like, your head fills up. And it's not just full of your own life. It's full of people telling you what music you have to listen to and, and TV show to watch and book to read and all that. And so I thought, right, I need to just create some space in my head. So if I get rid of my own life from my head, if I kind of upload it, then I'll have time to watch Game of Thrones and stuff like that. But that's not what happens, is it, when you write a memoir? No. Because you end up coming out and talking about it to hundreds of people. Does the experience of writing about the things that have happened in your past, does it put them in the past for you? And is it, and is it different when you write stuff down than when you remember it or talk about it with friends? Or No, I think, I mean, it's, it's, it's made things very fresh and very new again. And, and, and it's... I, the, way, the way I've structured the book is, it is an autobiography, but it's not... It, it's a bit unconventional in that it's an A to Z. So uh, it's not strictly chronological. So, like, B is for baldness, G is for gay, J is for Jewish. So that just allowed me to focus on things. Those are the three key areas. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, because if I was writing it chronologically and I was writing, for instance, about being gay, well, what... When, when in the book does that happen? Does it happen when I'm 13 and I start to first have those thoughts, ladies and gentlemen? Or does it start when I'm 19 and I start saying to my friends, oh, I think I might be bisexual? Or does it, which is, every, you know the thing, buy now, gay later. And, <laughs> and then... Which, which or, is not or, to diminish the very real sexual identities of, of the... But it was a gateway no, just drug in my for you. Just it in was my a gateway case. drug. Just in my case, yeah, just in my case. Um, uh, but then that was weird because I went to university and, and, and I went to Glibsock, the gay, lesbian, including bisexual society at Bristol. Don't laugh at my pain. And, uh, at Bristol University. And then I had a crush on a girl there. 
So it was all a bit peculiar. Anyway. Was it a girl? So, yes. Are you sure? Yeah. Just checking. Yeah. I know these days you can choose, but it was a girl. So, um... Was that your first crush on a girl? Uh, no, no, I'd had a few. Sexuality is a, is a spectrum, isn't it, ladies and gentlemen? So, um, man there shaking his head very fiercely. <laughs> um, anyway, so then, or do I tell the story from when I came out to my family? So there's all these different points. So I thought, well, maybe it's better if I just take these big, you know, chapter headings and, and just write about that, like, like baldness. You know, I, 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 I got knocked down by a car when I was four years old. And when I was six, all my hair fell out. And um, I'm so pleased you haven't laughed. A lot of people often just laugh at that. Um, uh, uh, and so when does that story start? When I'm four or into my adulthood, when I'm kind of using it in, in my career? Or, so I don't know. So I, I felt this was the best way for me to write things and be selective. And it also means I can be... Sort of, I could take, do a chapter, a whole chapter about eating, you know, which you wouldn't normally do in an autobiography. Mm, but which um, you do do. Well, I, I do eat a lot, so I write a lot about it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, right, so you've written alphabetically. Let's try and talk about it alphabetically, and let's start with B is for boldness. Yes. Um, so you mentioned about, about the car accident. So that was on a family holiday. Um, yeah, and, 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 and the reason I mention it is because the, there was no, nobody could understand why I'd lost my hair. So the doctors sort of thought, well, maybe the shock from getting knocked down caused the hair to fall out. You know, Duncan Goodhue yeah. fell out of a tree and his hair fell out. And I used to say, well, it was my head he landed on and that's why my hair fell out. <laughs> but um, uh, so that, we just accepted that as gospel. And I went all over to uh, try and get a cure. And there's no cure for baldness in conventional medicine. So I saw all these homeopathic sort of, you know, uh, quacks, basically. And, and I had this seaweed lotion rubbed into my head and I had acupuncture, which was is just quite a weird experience, which I write about in the book, but I probably won't go into detail here. Um, and uh, took some strange pills and all sorts, but the hair didn't grow back. So, um, so I kind of got on with it, but... Can I just, I was, for one second, yeah. how did your hair fall out? Did it, was it a kind of overnight thing, or was it, was it gradual? And what was your hair like? I, well, I, it's firstly, to... my hair, like the rest of me, was quite beautiful. Um, <laughs> it was blonde, um, and then it started to go a bit brown, and then it fucked off. Um, <laughs> so, excuse my language, um, uh, but I took one look at you, saw you were common, so I thought I'd swear. <laughs> so, um, uh, and then, yeah, so it fell out over sort of three or four months over the course of a summer. Um, and, and, and it was an interesting thing because growing up, everybody knew who I was in the town. So I was sort of famous in my local town. And people who met me would see me again three years later and go, oh, I remember seeing you at that party or something like that because I was the kid with no hair. And, um, and it made me not just, be, not just want to be known for having no hair. It made me... Uh, want to do other things, which is how I got into acting. But when I was um, 11 and I was, I was getting ready to go to secondary school, um, it was decided that I should wear a wig and so um, uh, that, that I would fit in, you know, more easily at secondary school. So I went and I got a wig on the National Health Service and you couldn't 
You couldn't... Yeah, you see, laughing at my pain. So you couldn't get children's wigs then. I don't even know if you can get them now. Um, oh, you latecomers, can't... come in, come in. Everybody stood up, said a little bit about themselves. Um, <laughs> his name's Damien, he itches there. My name's Matthew, I itch here. And we've just been going around the room, so please join us. Um, uh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, so, so, so they didn't make wigs on the National... Uh, children's wigs on the National Health, so I had a, like, a woman's wig, which, and it was huge. It was like this big bouffant, and laughing at my pain again. And uh, it was, like, bigger than my head. And so it was more like a hat. But I wore this wig, and, of course, it didn't really work because I, I don't have any eyebrows, so it just looked strange. And then I went to school, to primary school, wearing it to kind of get used to it, to wear it in, and... How did um, you feel at that point when you were wearing it? Were you, were you thinking, I, I look ridiculous? Were you thinking, actually, I like this? Were you, were you scared? What was going on? Well, I was all right with the idea of getting a wig because I just thought, oh, it'd be so nice to fit in. It'd be such a relief to fit in and it would right. just liberate me. But, but the reality is I, I, it looks ridiculous. Mm. And, and, and actually, as I g- g- arrived in the playground in the morning, on the Monday morning, wearing this wig, still at primary school, uh, one of the boys in the year above me just ran past me, yanked it off my head and threw it in a puddle. And actually, laughing again at my pain. So actually, um, that was the best thing anyone could do, really, because yeah. it was like, stop wearing it. So then I used to throw it around, used to play catch with it in the playground, and everyone used to try it on. And, um, you know, it was... Yeah, and then it went into a cupboard. But when I, when I was 18 years old, I started doing stand-up comedy, and I played this character, Sir Bernard Chumley, and I yeah. wore the wig in my act, so I did finally get to wear it. We'll come on to see you for Chumley in a minute, but you did discover at one point that, um, uh, quite shockingly, that you weren't the only person in your family who was, who was wearing a wig. Oh, yeah, that's true. When I was about 10 or 11, my dad called me into the bathroom one day, and he said, oh, I've, got, I've got something to tell you, but you can't tell anyone. You promise you won't tell anyone. And I said... Yeah, sure, uh, of course I promise. And then he, he slowly peeled back and he wore a wig and I had no idea. You'd never realised. No idea. And, of course, when my dad... I used to tease my dad and say, you wear a wig, because it was just a funny thing to say, but I never for one instant thought he did. And I remember him coming home one day with completely different hair, but I never thought it was a wig, because why would you think your own father wears a wig? But he said, you promise you won't tell anyone? I said, of course I won't. And then I went to Hebrew classes, and I told everyone, I said, my dad wears a wig! And everyone said, we know! It's so obvious! Um, and, And he just wore a wig. But then... A couple of years later, he went to prison, and I went to visit him. Uh, yeah, stop laughing now, see? And I went to visit him in prison, and he wasn't wearing his wig because he'd had a photograph taken in prison with the wig on, and they just take one look and said, well, no, because that looks like a disguise. You can't wear that. So then he had to have a photo without it, and then that was how he stopped wearing his wig, mm. you know. So, um, uh, yeah. yeah. So you, 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 you mentioned... All in the book. You mention it uh, sort of almost casually, and it's the way you mention it in the book as well, about your dad going to prison. Yeah. And particularly at the start of the book, there are lots of asides which are kind of devastating, you know, when I went to visit my dad in prison or, you know, about your parents' divorce, and then you kind of go back to what it is you're talking about, which is your hair or, or school. Well, because um, it's life isn't chronological. I no, really, it's not. I really believe it yeah. isn't. Thoughts aren't chronological, which is why I've done the book like this, because mm. you have an issue in your life 
you know, somebody, I don't know, people have issues in their youth and then they only really think about them and register them and understand them years later. Mm. And so that's why I think it's, for me, it was good to just go, right, now I'm talking about this. So at at school, you're standing out because you're the boy with no hair and then your dad goes to jail. Did the other pupils at school know about that and why did he go and what was the impact of that on your family? Um... He, uh, well, actually, I was at secondary school. I was in my first year at secondary school, and I was called, and my mum took me to school the morning after I'd been told, and I was taken in to meet, see my housemaster, and you have to understand, this is the early 1986. It's over 30 years ago. So the conversation went, uh, ah, Lucas, uh, your mother told me your news. Um, my advice to you would be, don't tell anyone. Uh, you're not the first person who, this is boy, whose father has gone to prison in this school. I'm sure you won't be the last. Uh, don't tell anyone. If you have any problems, uh, come and see me. And that was it. Um, there wasn't really that... I mean, maybe they were looking... Maybe they were taking care of me from a distance. Mm. But there wasn't any sense of, are you OK? How do you feel? Which, I, I mean, you know, I suppose it was busy. They had a lot of things to do. It's a mm. school, but... Um, so I didn't know, I didn't, and then I, then I told a couple of close friends, you know, who were very sympathetic about it. He um, had a business that was failing. He um, borrowed some money with the intention of paying it back. He was unable to pay it back because the business continued to fail, mm. and he went to prison. And I, I, don't, I don't argue in the book that he shouldn't have got, you know, no, I, you I accept that. I think he, he accepted that, you know. But, um, yeah, but the thing is, he, he, he was away for six months, which... When you're 11, as I was, I think I was 11 when he went to prison. Uh, it's the longest time in the world. Yeah. The longest time in the world. Um, yeah. It's one of the most beautiful bits of the book, actually, for me, is where you describe going to visit um, your dad with your brother, and you go to visit him in prison, in this open prison, and you're sitting in the sunshine, um, and you're having ice creams. And it's oh, just, you know, what that was, there was a day where he actually, during his sentence, there was one day where he came out of oh, prison. Right, um, he had to, for, for, to see some lawyers or something, where he came to London, and we went to meet him, and suddenly we were having lunch in a department store in the middle of his prison sentence. And it was, yeah, it was a really... I mean, I say, it's, it's a weird thing, because I, I don't want to be evasive by any means, but, and I'm also not trying to do a hard sell, but obviously there's some things that are very personal to me in this book and, and that I'd never really spoken about before. And, and there's things that are even probably um, darker and more personal than this story even, but, but I always feel like I, I write them better than I say them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so I'm not, I'm not saying I don't want to talk about them, no. but I, I'm happy to talk about them, but I don't think I do them justice in the way, hopefully, I express them in the book. Well, you certainly do justice. Buy the book, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't mean it like that, but I, I, um, it's, hard, it's hard to write about that stuff, you know? Because if you write about it, it means you have to think about it. Is there stuff that you thought about and that you wrote about that, that you then... that isn't in the book? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah of course, of course. Um, yes, yeah. Yeah, every, I think I'm sure everybody has that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you've written obviously autobiographical, wonderful Maggie and me, wonderful um, autobiographical piece. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, of course you have to listen. I mean, I don't want to. Th- you don't want to throw anyone under the bus, you know. When you're writing a book, you can. No, it's the I wrong mean, reason. Uh, yeah, it's not necessary, you know. So you write a first draft where you say everything about everyone, and um, and then you don't, and then you take it out. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I cut about 20,000 words of my memoir before, just before publication. Um, and I remember my editor saying to me, this book's a lot shorter um, than it was. But it was the book that I had to kind of give in because, you, as you say, you've got to go and talk about it and, and then people know. Once you tell people these things about you, they, they know everything. How, how has that been for you, that process? Because you've been in the public eye for a very long time, but this is a very different kind of yeah, self Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. Talking about things... Uh, in, I talk about uh, bereavement and stuff like that um, a, a fair bit. Uh, yeah, it's a bit... You've, you, one... Uh, uh, pe- people in this position can feel quite exposed, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk about C is for Chumley. Yeah. The, 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 or, like, the, the revenge of the wig, basically. So you got the wig back out of the cupboard um, in order to create this character who was one of your first comic creations. was really my first comic creation. And, and so when I was... Um, I did a load of child acting. I talk a little bit about it in the book. And then, and then I started doing stand-up comedy from the age of 18. And, and so, so I said to my mum, you know, uh, uh, after my A-levels, I had this place at university and I said, I'd like to take a year off. And, you know, like, it's where everyone's going to Australia or to Goa. People going to Goa. It's just, you know, to go to Goa, really. <laughs> and and, I, and I, it was kind of the middle-class thing to do. And I said to my mum, well, I'm, I'm going to be a comedian, actually. And she said, great, but I've got three jobs, so you're going to need to bring some money into the house if you're going to be living at home for a year. So I, got, so, so I used to do stand-up comedy at night, and then I got this job um, for a year during the day as assistant manager of the Chelsea Football Club shop. Which um, I'm an Arsenal fan, ladies and gentlemen, and a very big one. And so I used to wear my Arsenal top underneath, um, uh, underneath my Chelsea shirt. But so I, I lived this kind of Clark Kent double life, where I'd be doing these gigs, and kind of, kind of, you know, sometimes going down really well. And then the next morning, I'd be like lugging these cardboard boxes full of Chelsea tops out of a van and into the shop. But it's good. You, it's, it's important to have to have both experiences, you know, to be grounded like that. Yeah, but I mean, I, some of the gigs you described were absolutely terrifying. Like, you know, that, you know, people... I mean, this audience is, you know, so tame compared to the early audiences where oh, people yeah. are throwing pint glasses and All know, of scream, that, yeah. screaming abuse at yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, like, like I remember going. coming off stage and a guy going, you fucking come here again, you cunt! I'm going to fucking smash your face in! You know, as I'm walking off the stage, a guy, like, strangling me, things like that. I mean, I wasn't that funny, but I understand, like, that's quite a strange... <laughs> it's quite a strange... I mean, sorry for the language, but it's like... It was a rough old... It was a rough apprenticeship in the clubs. It was, it was rough, and I did... I'm actually... Um, I was on the, recorded the Graham Norton show last night and told this story um, about um, doing this gig in Crystal Palace when I was about 19. And um, there was this guy in the audience, it was quite a small uh, club, and there was a guy in the audience who was about six foot five and uh, really big, and he was just heckling and heckling and heckling and utterly destroying the evening, um, this, this Irish guy. And, and even the compare couldn't cope. And if the compare loses them, you are screwed. Do you know what I mean? Because it means that even if, a, even if one act does really well, at the end of that act, the compare comes back on stage and the guy's heckling again. So it always means that whoever comes on then has to kind of take on the heckler. And, and people didn't really know what to do. Should I kind of ignore this heckler? Should I watch? And, and he, was, he was fearsome and he was really humorless and he was really loud. And you could tell that the rest of the room were just as scared of him as the act. Mm. And it was just, it was a horrible, horrible vibe. 
And I just thought, no one has come to see this. And so I was about 19, I got on stage, and I just didn't do my act. And I just tore him apart from the stage. And there was such relief from the audience. And I don't even think I was that funny, but I just kind of took him down. Mm. And then he came up to me as I came off stage, and he went, well done, that was very funny. <laughs> 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 now I'm going to take you outside and beat the bollocks off of you. Oh. And I went, oh, um, I, oh, you know, it was just an act. He went, ah, you're all right, I'm only joking with you. And I went, oh, he goes, no, actually, fuck it. You know what I mean? <laughs> you don't get to talk like that to me in a room full of people in front of my wife. I'm going to fucking take you outside and beat the living daylights out of you. And I went, oh, my God. No, I'm only playing with you. <laughs> actually, no. No, and it just went back and forth and back and forth like this, and I had to be escorted out of the venue. Oh my god! Um, yeah, it's it quite was... scary when you read that bit in the book. I mean, yeah, is, it was it... scary. It was scary doing the circuit. Was scary. It was scary, so... and it was also scary because I had this act that was this old um, theatrical lovey, and he actually appeared in the first series of Little Britain, and he sort of, in some ways part of the genesis of this character Pompidou that I did in this series. But basically, he's this old theatrical lovey, like a kind of raconteur, and he would come out and he'd say, wonderful to see so many young people here today. I love young people. I try and stay young myself. Do you know I even entered the Young Musician of the Year the other day? He was furious. No, 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 no. <laughs> and so, and I come out now... <laughs> sometimes the audience would do what you did, and sometimes they'd just go, what? <laughs> Why is a bloke, like, pretending to be an actor? Like that. And they would yeah. just be, like, baffled. And so I would go on stage, and I'd literally, like, either bring the roof off the place, they would love it, or they would just hate it. I remember going to the comedy store once and walking on stage and going, good evening, and the whole club just got up and went to the bar. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, and Don Ward, who ran the comedy store, said, look, I can't, I can't book you. I said, well, you should do. Look what I've done to the sales at the bar. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, so it was, it was, a, it was scary. It but was what scary. Were you get, so what were you getting out of it then? What, what, what was well, you validation going and vindication. Uh, and again, this thing about if you're going to know me, you're not going to know me just because I've got no hair. Right. You know, and, I was, uh, and the thing was, you know, most of the people on the stand-up circuit were, were people, you know, you appeared as yourself, you appeared, you know, like this, and you maybe had a pint in one hand and a cigarette in the other, and you spoke about your life and your girlfriend and, mm. you know, and, and jobs you'd done and what you saw in the news. But I, I was this kind of um, torn up 18-year-old with very poor self-image, scared of being gay, you know, uh, uh, self-conscious about my appearance, not having hair, being overweight, everything, everything that's still the same. And just like... And just and and I could not go on a stage as myself like like this. So 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 for me, the only option was to go on in character. And it actually felt more honest to go on in character. But some some people in the audience were just baffled by it. You know, um, tomorrow night you have Harry Hill here, I believe, or tomorrow mm. at some point. And he was the king of the circuit. And he was doing something very unusual. And but he, but he was just glorious in every way. And he was very kind to me. He saw my act. And he said, you know, oh, I like what you're doing and here's my number and here's the number of about a dozen people who run comedy clubs. Yeah. Call them up, tell them that I said to book you and, uh, 
And the other person who spotted me was Bob Mortimer after doing stand-up for five weeks. And I was the biggest Vic and Bob fan in the world. And I'd been in the National Youth Theatre when I was 16 and where I'd met David Walliams. And he was also a huge Vic and Bob fan. And, um, and I had these two ambitions. One was to work with David and one was to, to one day meet Vic and Bob. So I fulfilled both my ambitions pretty early. Um, so tell us about that first meeting with, with David. Do you, um... Well, we both did impressions, right? We're both in the National Youth Theatre and we both did um, impressions, right? And so... So I just joined the National Youth Theatre and I was on this kind of induction course. This happens in the summer holidays. And he was already like the, one of the stars of the company because he was so funny. He was about three years, old, three years older than me. He was 19, I was 16, in the summer of 1990. And we were at this Halls of Residence in Tufnell Park in North London. And, um, and I used to do this ropey impression. I used to do a few ropey impressions, but the one at the time that was most celebrated was of Jimmy Savile, and his was... Uh, too, you know soon, too soon, too <laughs> soon. Oh, dear. Um, and, uh, and his was Frankie Howard. And, uh, and so I was just known as Jimmy, and he was just known as Frankie, and people said, oh, you've got to go and you've got you to gotta, uh, you gotta, uh, meet each other. Now, if this was 10 years ago, and I was telling this story, I'd do my impression, but obviously I'm not going to do it anymore. Um, uh, but, uh, but David's Frankie Howard impression was incredible. And, um, and then the next year, we were cast in a play, uh, The Tempest, where he was either Stefano or Trinkolo, I can't remember. And I was actually a stagehand bringing props on and off. But I would watch him in the rehearsal room and just thought, this is the funniest man on the planet. And I really, I, I, I always thought that right throughout our relationship. You know. So when did it go from admiration to cooperation and, and you starting to actually make work together? Well, we were just friends for four years. We were just friends and... And one of the things was that I went to study theatre, film and television at Bristol University, and he had just studied that same course. So we had sort of had this common frame of references. We'd had the same tutors and lecturers, uh -huh. studied the same texts, um, uh, knew the same people, the same places. And then we just go and see plays at the National Theatre, and we were quite kind of arty in a way, but he was really supportive. He'd come and see my stand-up. He used to do some stand-up. I'd go and watch it. And then eventually uh, he came to see me at the Edinburgh Festival in 1994, and we'd known each other four years, and, and we both just turned to each other in the Pleasance Bar and said, shall we, shall we come up here next year with the show? It was like, yeah. And we both had the same thought at the same time, you know. And... Um, and, and we were both very industrious, and we laughed at the same things, and so, so it was good. What was that first show that you did in Edinburgh together? The first show we did was called Sir Bernard Chumley is Dead and Friends! And um, uh, it was... Still uh, mixed reaction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was weird. Um, uh, we did this show at the Assembly Rooms in a little room called the Wildman Room in 1995, and it was a really, really anarchic show uh, where I would play Sir Bernard. He would play a few different people. He played this stage manager called Tony Rogers, who, had, who was on the run. It was a murderer who'd escaped from prison. And, <laughs> um, and we would really berate the audience and kind of attack them and abuse them. And, you know, a masochist would come and enjoy the show, you know, <laughs> and we'd chuck water at the... I mean, it was really anarchic. It was like, I don't know, tis was on acid or something. It was crazy. And, um, and I remember what we used to, We had this advert on the poster Free Crash, 
which just amused us because the show was at midnight. <laughs> but somebody did bring their... They brought their little baby oh, along at midnight. Yeah. yeah, we felt really bad about that. But I did this thing. <laughs> we weren't really selling very well, and I'd heard of this trick that this other mm. comedian, Boothby Graffo, had done, mm. where we had about three nights, no-one was really coming. And so uh, I just went down and wrote, sold out on the door. Uh, and we weren't even on that night. And then I used to go and just write, sold out. Uh, uh, the next night and the next night. And after about three nights, we were selling out. And we sold out for the rest of the run because people thought, oh, I better go and see that. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So Elle in the book, we've skipped forward, but we'll, we'll skip back. Um, Elle is for Little Rumblings, and it's the, sort of the, beginning, um, the beginnings of the ideas and some of the characters um, for, for Little Britain. So tell us about how you got that break on radio. Um, well, we wrote Little Britain as a TV script, but we just couldn't get in the room. You know, we couldn't meet the head of BBC Two, we weren't important enough. We've been doing this series on um, cable TV called Rock Profile, where Jamie Theakston would interview us, and each week we play different pop stars, and, and we'd do these really strange... It was kind of like a forerunner to um, Bo Selector, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, and and uh, we wrote Little Britain as a TV script. I don't think... I don't know that it, it got read, but... Um, uh, we were walking down the street and I bumped into Ashley Blaker, who had been in the year below me at school and who was a friend of mine, and he had just qualified, uh, and I'd lost touch with him. We'd lost touch several years earlier, but he had just qualified as a, a, a producer um, at the BBC, and he was looking to make radio shows, and it was just a really fortuitous meeting. So we converted Little Britain into a, into a radio idea. But it was always in our minds that it was going to go on TV. Always. It was going to go on TV. And so even when we were recording the radio show, we'd say, well, when we do it on TV, which actually is kind of presumptuous, really, but we never doubted it. Yeah. Um, and so the characters who were in the radio, um, I mean, I know you kind of backstitched them from television, but what was that transition like from, from radio to television? Was it smooth because you'd always expected no, it? No, I, I wouldn't say it was because um, the radio show was really successful. And then we got this TV pilot and um, Graham Linehan, who's this brilliant uh, writer, director, producer, he co-wrote Father Ted and Big Train and, uh, and uh, Count Arthur Strong recently, and is, is one of the most respected, um, most admired, you know, uh, uh, comic minds, especially amongst other comedians. Um, he very kindly came on board to direct and uh, co-produce the pilot, and he just took our radio show and went, great, that was good, that was on radio, great. Um, on TV, let's take those characters, let's write some new sketches. And I was mortified because I thought, oh, what, well, I, oh, I thought we were just going to take the radio sketches and then wear costumes and do them on TV, and, and I thought that would be fine. And Graham said, no, absolutely not. And I, and I dug my heels in for a little bit, mm. and, then, and there was a bit of a standoff. And then, you know, David and our producer said, look, you know, we have this great par person now who's joined the team, mm. and, and we should really listen to him. You know, and, and eventually I kind of went, OK, let's, let's, go, let's go your way then. And, and it was the best thing ever because then, like when we were doing the Dennis Waterman sketches, we started bringing in these huge props and things like that. And, and he really helped us visualise what the show could be. So, again, you know, along the way, you know, you need to work really, really hard to, to have, the, you know... Uh, some success and you need to some extent to be good at what you do but you also really need luck 
And, and I mean, you know, we took advantage, we, you know, we took advantage of our luck. Mm. When we were given some luck, we worked really hard, but we did have luck. And, and having Graham Linehan on board was a great piece of luck for us. Are there any of the characters that feel more yours or more David's or that you, feel, that, that, that you each feel a sense of kind of possession about or did you sort of, you know... Because you can't come up with everyone together. Some, something's got to come from you, something's got to come Well, come no, from everything was written together. Yeah. You know, so even when there's an idea, like, I don't know, like, David had this idea... Uh, to do, you know, a character who, has a, who goes into a shop and wants to buy very, very, very specific things, regardless of whether they exist or not. So he wanted this pirate memory game uh, for <laughs> kids at ages two to eight called Yo-Ho-Ho. And I say, well, do, oh, right, where have you seen it? Oh, I don't know whether it exists or not, but that's what I want to buy. Um, but then I had the idea of kind of the northernness and, then, you know, Margaret, Margaret... And then the long pause. So I think it really... I do think this show was a collaboration. And David, I think, was, was very, is very, very brilliant at thinking of the, of the, the central comic idea. He's mm. absolutely brilliant at that. And then sometimes I was good at sort of adding the, the glitter and, and, do you know what I mean, the texture. Yeah. Um, but occasionally we'd switch. And when it came to, say, Kenny Craig... Uh, unusually for me, uh, he was our hypnotist, and I just, I just thought, oh, a hypnotist who uses his powers off stage, but for very small gain. And I just had that, you know, idea of like, oh, it's that in a line, you know yeah. what I mean? But David was great at thinking um, an 18 year old who uh, is, falls in love with his best friend's uh, elderly grandmother. He's like brilliant at that. Uh, a 25-year-old, a 25-year-old <laughs> who is still breastfed. He's brilliant at that. Whereas, whereas I knew, knew, but yeah, but no, but I, but then I had to go. Well, I, I've got that, but I've got to work out who he is, and that's where David helps me. So yeah. we were, we would finish each other's work in a way. Do you know what I mean? So it did to me. It always did feel like this is collaboration. Absolutely. So you you said you knew it would always be on television. You felt that it would be, but you couldn't have foreseen the, the success and the fact that those characters would they didn't have the language, the, the lexicon that you know everybody everybody knows them. You couldn't have seen that. No, I, I couldn't have seen foreseen that the scale of it yeah. uh, at all. But it was a strange thing, and I, I spoke about this recently somewhere else about how. Um, Time, you know, I talk about luck and timing is everything and, and, and it's uh, a synthesis of lots of things coming together. Mm. And actually what had happened was um, around the time that we were, we were making the Little Britain TV pilot, the huge phenomenon was The Office, which is, I mean, I probably wouldn't be alone in this room in thinking that was the, the funniest six, half, 12 half hours that have ever been made, or the greatest sitcom of our time, certainly. And... and the consequence of that was that everyone in the industry was trying to make the next office. Mm. So, because of the office, and to some extent, I think also because of the royal family, which was, which was also remarkable, that very low-key, observed, what do they call it, like verite, or yeah. like yeah. mock documentary vibe, low-key, single camera, you know, and then every, it's like everybody was looking in that direction, trying to make that. And then me and David just came in behind them all with these ridiculous costumes and going, hello, everybody! <laughs> and we just had big laughter tracks and live audiences and shot lots of stuff in front of an audience with five cameras and it was studio and it was really unashamedly comic. And so I think we were just lucky because if, if our show had been on at the same time as 
the League of Gentlemen or the Far Show. I don't think it would, but there just was a gap. And we were able to fill it, yeah. You say in the book that you, you think if you did the show now that you would do a lot of the characters differently. Yeah, you'd who, make a who, different show now. Oh, uh, well, you'd, I, don't, I mean, you wouldn't... I mean, like, you wouldn't do a, a comic transvestite now. You just wouldn't. It's like... You just wouldn't do it. It's, uh, it's, it's from a different time, you know. And in a way, when we did it, it was sort of a throwback to, mm. the, to an era before us, you know, because we'd grown up on Dick Emery and Are You Being Served? So it was almost a bit of a love letter to the kind of camp comedy that we had watched. But yeah. you would know, you, you would, it would, it would, no, you would never do that now. Uh, you, you, you know, in Little Britain, we played our, you know, in Little Britain and Come Fly With Me, our thing was, uh, you know, we were show-offs and we were always saying, oh, look how many characters we can play. And, and so both of those shows, the kind of conceit is that, that everyone in the world is kind of played by David or me. And so you play tall, short, fat, thin, straight, gay, black, white, male, female, whatever. Mm. But now... We, you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't have, you wouldn't play a character of another race now. You wouldn't. You just... Times change. So mm. I think, you know, Little Britain exists in a different time. And so if you did Little Britain again now, because people ask me, oh, you, will you do Little Britain again, you know? And, uh, and it'd be great to work with David again, but if we did Little Britain now and we did, you know, a rubbish transvestite now, it would quite rightly be seen as outmoded yeah. and and you know we are all of us i think collectively have a much greater appreciation i do i think of of the challenges of of being transgender in a yeah. way that yeah. i didn't really there wasn't much visibility then i didn't think about it really yeah. Yeah. you know and so now it would seem dated um uh or to play characters of other races but if you did little britain and you didn't do those things people would say, well, that's not Little Britain. So I think the best thing to do is just to leave Little Britain where it is. You could maybe take some characters from Little Britain and do... You, you could maybe do Lou and Andy again. Um, if you... If, if, I know some people feel with... with you know, uh, we uh, did this character, Marjorie Dawes, um, who, with Fat Fighters, and I love doing that character. And, and uh, you know, maybe one day I could do something else with that character. But you do, you do, there is a, a greater awareness of, like, fat shaming now. Yeah. Um, so you'd have to, you'd do it in a different way. You know, you'd do the character differently, I think. The, the, the Marjorie character, um, early in the book, going back, um, again, you casually mentioned about going to Weight Watchers as, as a boy, and I just thought that was a really shocking, sort of throw, almost a kind of throwaway line. I mean, how it's old... shocking when you look at me now to think I ever went to Weight Watchers, because obviously it hasn't really uh, taken hold. How old were you when, when you went, and who's, um, whose idea was 13. it 13. I, I was 13 because I went shortly after my bar mitzvah, because um, uh, I, I, I was very big, and then in about four months I lost probably two stone, which when you're 13 is... Or more, I think. Uh, so I, I went from being fat to not being fat anymore uh, 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 over, over the course of a summer, yeah. uh, Was there a Marjorie kind of... Was it, well, no, there was, a, there was a, a... You know, I went to Weight Watchers, there was the weigh-in, and there was a, a very, very nice lady, because obviously Marjorie isn't very nice, but there was a very nice lady, and she would always go at the beginning, Any new members? Anybody? Any new members? <laughs> and that was her thing, new. And I don't know why, but that just stayed with me. Any new <laughs> members? And then she would also do that thing of, like, those are 
Now, where did you weigh yourself? And you say, well, I weighed myself at home, Marjorie. Mm. You probably need the Weight Watchers scales, don't you, which we are selling this week for 20% off. So there was a, <laughs> she was a, there was a lot of hard sell, yeah. you know, and about make, make sure... There are good low-fat des desserts, but there are also the Weight Watchers low-fat dessert. And there, <laughs> so there was a lot of hard sell there, yeah, yeah um, which we put into Marjorie. So you're making the, the show series after series. It's hugely popular. The whole country's talking about it. And then you decide that you want to take it on tour. Mm. Um, why did you make that, that call? I mean, it sold out. I think 250,000 tickets went in a matter of yeah, hours. Yeah, we played to over 800,000 people in the end. Um, amazing. Uh, well, why did we decide? Because... Because it's a show about Britain. We yeah. thought, let's go around Britain. And, you know, and, uh, and we, we had done... When I did, I did Shooting Stars, and we'd done this stage show, and it was just great fun, you know, to go around the country. And the, and the Fast Show and the League of Gentlemen had yeah. done these kind of big tours where they played to three or 4,000 people a night. Yeah. And so we just thought, oh, wouldn't it be great to, to do this? And then the weird thing happened was that... The, the, the way the show went, we ended up playing arenas. So we, we, I think Little Britain was the first arena tour yeah. for comedy in this country where, a whole, where we ended up doing like 40 arenas. But now, I mean, I think Mickey Flanagan's doing 12 nights at the O2. Incredible. You know, so now arenas are the thing. So, um, but we ended up being on the road for 18 months. Now you'd play to that many people in about two months, you see, because the whole thing would be... But we didn't start off in arenas. You know, that was just the, the, the final leg of the tour. Um, um, I'm going to open up to questions in just a minute, but we'll skip forward to the middle of the book, um, which is M. M is for the middle of the book. Yeah, so I didn't really know what to do for middle... I thought, well, let's have a break. Middle of the book. Middle of the book. <laughs> um, so I wrote a song called Middle of the Book. So if you buy the book... Or steal the book. I mean, it wouldn't change anything. Um, there is... Uh, but don't steal the book. Uh, please. Uh, independent bookshops. Come on, help these guys out. Uh, so, if, uh, if you... Yeah, in the middle of the book, there is a song called Middle of the Book, and the sheet music is in there, but it, there's um, a URL... If you go to middleofthebook.com, you can hear the Middle of the Book song, yeah. I love writing songs. I used to do it in Shooting Stars, George Dawes, these songs. And... Um, and that's what I want to do next. I want to write a musical, actually. Yeah. And you wrote this. You wrote the middle of the book with somebody, didn't you? With a, oh, with a my friend Alicia. Yes. Yeah. You got very excited when I told you that because she's in. She was in Nashville, which is a series that um, that I love, and she played the nasty redhead, not that's the good right. redhead, the bad redhead. Yeah, she's an American actress. Because I I moved to California about five years ago, so and she's my friend. Yeah. <laughs> he does do the throughout the book when he drops a name, he goes clunk. Which clang. is very good. Clang, sorry. I have a clangometer in the book. Well, what do you do? How do you write an, uh, uh, an, an autobiography yeah. and you just keep name-dropping and you just feel like, oh, well, I wouldn't do that in normal life. Go, oh, we did a show and Paul McCartney and Elton John and Kate Musselcat. You just feel like, weird. So I do a clangometer. It's really weird. When we did the um, Little Britain tour and like, Paul McCartney came, David Walliams said that he had this voice in his head that after every joke, he just thought... He, all he could hear was himself saying, I wonder what Paul McCartney thought of that joke. Then, I wonder what Paul McCartney thought of that joke. I wonder what Paul McCartney thought of that joke. Yeah, it's really weird. You forget, like, when we did Rock Profile, you know, George Michael and Robbie Williams and Jerry Heller, like, these people that you completely rip the piss out of end up watching the show, and then you end up, like, meeting them, and it's a, it's a strange thing, yeah. Are you going to stay in California, do you think, for the foreseeable? Uh, for the foreseeable future, yeah. But I'm still a British citizen. I still 
pay my taxes here. I come back, you know, my friends and family are here. So I sort of, I'll be there for like three or four months and then I'll come back for a couple of weeks and then mm. go back and forth. I tend to do my writing there because there's a bit less distraction. And then I come back to the UK to film. So I, yeah, yeah. Okay. I like both. Let's open it up to questions. Lady in the front row, she sat exactly where we can see her. Lovely. There you go. Hello, everybody. Microphone's see coming you now. to you. Oh, somebody waved. Hello. Hello. Hi, Matt. Hi. Um, I have a question for What's you. your name? Where have you come from? No, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Darling, don't, don't feel the need. Darling, I'm Elizabeth. I'm up in Cheltenham. Lovely. Lovely. But um, I haven't read your book yet. Right. I'll, fine. I'll, See, it starts here. I'll, yeah. I'll, 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 I will buy it this evening. Or yeah. steal it. But she looks uh, like Yeah, because I'm type. signing them, do, do aren't I? I look yeah. like a robber. But <laughs> look at that. Yes. My, my, my question, it's quite Very a much. deep one, and if you don't want to answer it, that's fine. But I know it's in your book. You've referred to bereavement. When your husband, your ex-husband, um, you know, left the earth plane, committed suicide, how, how did you cope with it? Well, the thing is, um, I've never, ever uh, spoken about that in interviews. I don't speak about it in interviews. And in the book, I don't really... I, I do talk about bereavement in the book, actually. Um, and... Uh, and I thought long and hard about how to write about that. And I think, I think I speak better about it in the book than I would do here, really. So uh, I'm not trying to do a hard sell. Generally, I don't mind uh, uh, people buy it or not. But I think that question is better answered on those, on those pages than it is here for me today. I th and I'm sorry, I'm sorry about that, but I, I appreciate the question. Yeah. I, th I think what's beautiful about the way that you the, the way that you acknowledge that and deal with that is is that you give yourself the space and then you talk about Kevin um, in terms of how much you love him and also the the spaces that that he's left in your life and the things that he brought to you. So he's very present in the book. It's not like you're trying to avoid it. He's there, um, uh, and and I think anybody who reads it will will feel that. Um, and there are lots of pictures too. So um, another question, please. Question from a man over there. And there, sorry. Hey, Matt. Um, Hello. I loved your performance um, in the Blue Tones video, Mudslide. Well, that's obscure, but thank you. <laughs> and I know you went on tour with Blur. And yes. And you did Les Mis. And I know that's you're a big Queen there, yeah. fan. Yeah. So I wonder if you just talk about your relationship with music through your life. Thank you for the question. Well, I did, yeah. I mean, I mean, I started playing the drums as a kid just because if you played the drums at my school, you didn't have to go to chemistry lessons. <laughs> so I knew I wasn't going to work in the field of chemistry. Um, and so, because uh, I got 11% in a chemistry exam, I think. So, um, so I started playing drums. And then, weirdly, I ended up playing drums in shooting stars, you know. And I always said that Vic and Bob were my Lennon and McCartney, and I became their Ringo, you know. And... Um, uh, so, yeah, no, so I always had this, I, I felt, you know, I love the world of music. And, and one of my f most favourite experiences ever was appearing in Les Miserables, uh, which I did at the O2. We did this big concert of the 25th anniversary. And then I did three months in London, which actually is nothing compared to the people who do it eight times a week for a year or two years or more. But um, it's, it was one of those pinch-yourself moments for me because... That musical, I think, is just, is just so wonderful. And I, I was so glad to get the opportunity to do that. Um, but the 25th anniversary was filmed. And um, uh, I was the only person in that show who 
who hadn't, who, who had never been in Les Miserables, the, the normal production. And we were filming Come Fly With Me, and then it finished on a Friday night, and then on a Saturday morning I was rehearsing, and then the following Sunday, eight days later, we would, I was performing Les Miserables, you know, the show in front of the audience. And I was, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and I came on the wrong bits, sung the wrong bits, <laughs> forgot lines. I was all over the place in the afternoon. And in the evening, I didn't make any mistakes. And that's the performance that was filmed. And that's the performance that people have seen. But if you'd been there in the afternoon, you'd go, who's this work experience bloke? <laughs> yeah, but great, great. I recommend it. If you ever get to be in Les Mis, go and be in Les Mis. It's lovely. And there is a brilliant Queen moment in the book. Um, yeah, well, I, I is... grew up a, a huge fan of Queen. Like, it was massive. And actually, and I went into a bit of a depression when Freddie Mercury died, you know, mm. which partly because I was such a fan of his, but also because his death unleashed such an invective of homophobia from from the media and from politicians and I mean it was a really grim time 1991 clause 28 was at full effect and mm. and I mean I don't you I mean obviously you know we yeah. both grew up yeah. under that cloud and and um and so when Freddie died I, I was I became really upset and and were you uh, out at that point to your to no, no 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 and um in fact I'm not out please don't tell anyone <laughs> and but I ended up performing with well, the surviving members, you know, with Brian May and Roger Taylor, they, they, call, you know, they are Queen still. And I sang lead vocals with them, yeah, singing Good Old Fashioned Lover Boy. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. And that is, I'm not joking, that was six years ago, and it still hasn't sunk in. It still feels like it didn't happen. Yeah. Amazing. I think there was a, somebody, yes, the gentleman here. Hi, Matt. Um, wait for the microphone, it's coming to you. There you go, that's all right. What's your name? Scott Harrington. Hello, Scott Harrington. You tweet me sometimes, don't you? I do, yes. Um, you look about 28 years older than in your Twitter photo. Oh. <laughs> well... I might do the same thing. <laughs> How old are you now, Scott? I'm 20, just. You're 20, lovely, OK. Well, nice to see you again. In you came when I did Les Mis, didn't you? Yeah, we when got I was 13, yeah. I've got a good memory, haven't I? Yeah. Nice to see you again. Um, firstly, you are my idol. Right, no pressure um, here. And... Um... <laughs> Don't... Never meet your idols, though. Never meet your idols. But anyway, hello. And, um, excuse me, sorry. And um, I'm an aspiring uh, character comedian. Uh, I'm not here to steal your thunder, don't worry. That's fine, um, go for it. <laughs> but I have this uh, character that I'm trying to sort of get off the ground. And what advice <laughs> would you um, give to any aspiring new, new uh, char um, character comedians? Well, no, I wouldn't say... Uh, so where, where, do, you perform, uh, do you perform it on stage, or are you doing YouTube, things for YouTube, or where, how are you doing it? Because that's, that, that's very different, isn't it? I haven't started that yet. I've just started off by testing with my family and close friends, people I trust, basically. And also people who live with you so they can't escape. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm really pleased to hear that you're doing that, because... Um, people who are asking me when's Little Britain coming back really should be asking people like Scott to do something uh, because you need new blood and new mm. people. Mm. Um, the, the, well, if you were doing live comedy in clubs, because I started doing stand-up in clubs in character, the, the one bit of advice I tell everyone is record your gigs. Like, get, a, get the, you know, the, 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 the um, voice recorder on your iPhone or get a dictaphone and, and record them, just the audio, and listen to them on the way home because it's never as bad 
as you thought it was, and it's never as good as you thought it was, actually. And sometimes you have a killer joke, and it doesn't get a laugh, and you're about to cut that joke. But if you listen to the gig back, maybe somebody just coughed when you did the punchline, or maybe you missed a word out by mistake. Mm. And actually, it's really helpful. There's only so much you can take in when you're on a stage. But to everyone else, if it's not the live stuff, I just say, um, just, just, just work on YouTube. Work on YouTube. It's there. What a great resource. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but YouTube is what made Justin Bieber a star. Yeah. You know, YouTube is such a brilliant platform. And um, there's a kind of... I mean, obviously, there are, there are some promoted acts on YouTube, but there's a kind of democracy about YouTube in that anybody can upload their stuff there. And also, I think, in the context of YouTube, you know, if you, if you make something for... for 50 quid, and you put it on TV, people go, oh, that looks a bit cheap. But on YouTube, nobody judges you like that, do they? They kind of accept it. So I'd say get onto YouTube and do your stuff on there and send me a link. Brilliant. There you go. Yeah. And good luck. Next question there from a person with glasses. Oh, no, no one, no one with glasses, please. <laughs> no, no, it's too far. Too much. Hi. I was Hi. wondering, uh, how do you find the difference between uh, acting in comedies such as Little Britain uh, and acting in more comedic roles in something like Doctor Who? What's the difference between something that's a straight-up comedy and something that's a comedic role in a more serious show? Well, we're, if you're... I mean, obviously, one of the things about... Um, lovely question. One of the things about... Uh, thank you. One of the things about... Little Britain is that some of Little Britain was performed in front of an audience in a studio. And, of course, the great thing about having an audience is there is they tell you straight away yeah. whether, you're, whether you're succeeding at your job, which is to make people laugh. When you're, when you're filming something like Doctor Who, which is single camera on a set, um, is, is a bigger act of faith in a way. Because you can still, even in a studio recording, you can change a line, but on Doctor Who, you've kind of got to trust the process a bit more. Mm. Um, having said that, you can fluff a lot more when there's no audience there, you know, and be a bit more experimental, maybe. Um, uh, but, yeah, because I've, I've, I've played slightly more serious roles in some things and slightly funnier roles, and it's interesting because the industry regards uh, straight roles as being more noble, you know, which is why whoever wins an Oscar usually does so for playing a, a kind of straight role. Whereas, actually, I don't think comedy is any less noble than that. Maybe it's more noble in a way. And so, um, I, I think they've been... You know, for me, I, I, would, I would give the Oscar to Sacha Baron Cohen as Borat. Do you know what I mean? That's a, that, to me, even though it's a broad comedy, because I think it, nobody inhabits a character like Sacha Baron Cohen does. I think he's phenomenal. Um, and so I, the, the, tr the real answer is I don't really approach them any differently. Uh, uh, I try not to, because even when I'm playing a comic character like Vicky Pollard, who's obviously a bit different to Nardole in Doctor Who, you know, she's broader, but the character doesn't know that she's supposed to be funny. Mm. So I do, even if my performance is broader or smaller, um, I don't mentally actually approach it any, any differently. Okay. No. Um, there's no. a question at the back here. Yes. Um, hello. Well, hello, hello. Mobile. You've got a loud voice. Oh, no, you've got a microphone. Yes. Sorry. Uh, first of all, I'd like to congratulate you on your Attitude Award last night. Thank you night. very much. Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, first of all, I'd like to take you back to uh, Fat Finders and the uh, group process. I mean, although Marjorie can be seen as quite cruel, she is actually very affectionate as well. And I wonder, you know, how, how do you look at that? How, what did you feel about that? 
Well, I think she is, she is quite a spiky character, but it, the world of Little Britain, you know, was a, 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 our intention was to make it quite textured. So there are spiky characters in there, but there are also just silly characters in there and warm characters, hopefully, as well. Um, and put some of Marjorie Dawes is me just going, Dust, anybody? No? I mean, it's just, just stupid. Uh, so, so I suppose the idea is we just try and balance things out, really, and, and you can have a really sharp, nasty line, and then hopefully the next line is, is, is a bit tamer, you know, and you just get a bit balanced. Because if, if it was all one thing, it would just get a bit repetitive, really, I suppose. Yeah. But um, the thing is, I haven't watched Little Britain since we made it, and I haven't watched Come Fly With Me since we made it. And um, so my memory of it is probably not as good as some people in this room, you know. Uh, the weird thing is people still watch the show and people who, who discover it now. And that's always surprising to me because I just never, ever thought the show would, would still be around. But uh, I think it... I kind of feel like it is. It will be. Um, you, you say in the book you, that you're very reticent about watching yourself back. You listened back to your gigs in the past, but you know, not, not comfortable watching yourself back. And I wondered, have you, have you read the book back? Is it different reading <laughs> yourself on the page to seeing yourself well, on the Well, I recorded an audio book, which is um, four days in a room reading your own book. Um, and so, in, you know, so I did have that experience. And obviously, yeah. like, from an editing point of view, just sure. to go through it. But, no, just generally, like, reading the book. For pleasure, I never would come in and sit down and read my own book or, or put on one of my own shows. Or, no, never, never. And, in fact, I realised the other day, somebody asked me, I, I was in Midsummer Night's Dream, and I realised I hadn't seen that yet. And I don't always watch the things I'm in. In fact, I often don't. Um, I am self-conscious. I mean, the only thing I can, I can uh, compare it to is how I'm sure some people in this room feel, and it's nothing to do with how you look, but how some people feel when they see a photograph of themselves. They don't mm. like it. Well, I actually, even though I'm an actor and I'm like on TV and film, I actually also feel that mm. completely. Um, in fact, maybe even more so, and maybe that's why I'm an actor, to kind of be someone and something else. So, and that has never gone away. I've always had that, oh, why am I pulling that face? You know, so if I watch myself acting, it's just, oh, it's horrendous. Um, you do what, get... Uh, this is a name drop. I was in uh, um, Alice in Wonderland with Johnny Depp and we had this premiere and, and, and I was about to go in and watch the film. I said, you're not coming in... You're not coming into the film? He goes, oh, no. No, he says, I never, um, I never, I never watch myself never watch myself. I said, I'm like that as well. He goes, really? I went, yeah, I never watch you either. I don't... <laughs> not, not for me. <laughs> yeah. That seems like a great place to leave it. Please join me in thanking Matt Lucas. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, and I'm leaving. Thank you.